Erwin James is someone that I met uh, in Norway earlier this year. We travelled there together to visit prisons that do things very differently to the way we do things in the criminal justice system here. Erwin James is a man that was convicted of two murders and, and spent 20 years in prison serving a life sentence. He's been on parole for almost a decade now and he is a writer for the Guardian newspaper. He's also written books. He's also one of the most thoughtful and intelligent people I've ever encountered in my work and I'm sure as you'll find over the next hour he's engaged in a really important conversation uh, that we do have in society uh, about how to deal with criminals and whether reform, whether rehabilitation can work, whether prisons are worthwhile and whether people who've done the wrong thing can eventually re-emerge into the community and make a positive contribution. And in many ways, coming here today and having this conversation is for Owen James about making a positive contribution. So uh, without further ado, Owen James. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that very warm and generous welcome, Hamish. Thank you very much indeed. It's a huge privilege for me to be here and talk to you guys today. I just want to thank, you very, thank very much to the, uh, the organisers for, for working so hard to get me here. Uh, and thanks to the Australian government for actually allowing me in the country because uh, I wasn't sure that was going to happen at all at one stage. But they let me in and it's good to be here. Thank you. I am a writer, but I was. In 1984, I went to prison uh, for life. For 99 years, I was convicted, as Hamish said, of two appalling crimes of murder. I'm totally ashamed about that, and I'll, I will be for the rest of my life. You know, that's no, they're never going to change. But somehow, you know, I went in there with massive failings to overcome. The chances of me ever becoming someone who could make a, a positive contribution to society were slim in the extreme. The, the idea that I could live again amongst decent people. I, I, I had no notion of that ever happening. And when I got my sentence, the judge sentenced me, I went down the stairs the old bailey. And I had a real, a real sense of relief that my life was over. It had been such a painful life. Painful for me, painful for other people because of me, more importantly. And uh, it was over, it's finished, and I felt relief. They banged me in a cell. You know, my first year I was just locked in a, a cell for 23 hours a day. A bucket, my toilet, a chair, a table. Luckily I was literate so I could read. I was allowed six books a week from the prison library. And uh, I spent that year trying to figure out in my head how I'd become such a, a dreadful individual. I, couldn't, I was sure that I hadn't been born bad. You know, I, I don't believe that people are, are intrinsically or inherently, inherently bad. We're all born lovable. We're all born with potential. Now, I didn't think that at the time. But, uh, you know, I, in prison, you, you live in your head in prison. And I lived in my head for that year, trying to figure out, untangle my dysfunctions. The man in the cell above mine hanged himself my first Christmas. So I knew that prison, uh, you know, it was a place where people were struggling. It was a, a place of fear. Fear is the common courage in a prison. Um, and but I was I was a, I, I adapted. You know, I was a, I was a sort of. A robust character. I'd had a robust existence outside prison. And so I adapted to the prison landing life reasonably successfully. After my first year, they sent me to my first long-term high security prison where there was more sort of open time in the day. There were workshops, there was an education department, there was a chapel, there was a gymnasium, an exercise yard I could use. And I, I saw possibilities in this place, but I was still a long way from thinking that I could, you know, live again among society, but I saw possibilities in this place. And then I met a psychologist in this prison whose job was to assess my dangerousness, my risk. On that wing, there were 100 men uh, convicted of murder. Her job was to assess us all, call us up, make assessments, write reports. The way she did her job um, persuaded me that I had some value. I'd never thought of myself as being anybody valuable or worth, worth, worth anything, you know. But she persuaded me I had some value. And after about 18 months of cajoling, 
she got me to go on the educa- join in edu- education classes. And I'd never really had a, a f- much of a formal education. And I was almost 30 years old. And she said, you've got to get an education. You know, you've you, you, you got to get your mind thinking clearly. You need, you need books. You need to study. I said, her name was Joan Brandon. I said, Joan, I said, I'm too thick for education. And I thought it was it, pointless me going down there. But eventually I did. I, I thought, well, I'll, as a kindness to this lady, I'll go along and give it a go and have a go at it. And I joined this English class, this evening class. And it was, you know, it was like my big empty head. A light went on. A, a bulb lit up. And I, I couldn't get enough of it. I passed an exam, my first ever exam, and I, you know, 30 years old. I couldn't wait to get back to show the psychologist my certificate. My first ever one. I was like a little boy there, you know, so excited to get the certificate. And um, I joined other classes, you know, I did the, the things that other the kids do, and geography and history and all that sort of stuff. Books became my best friends in prison. And I, I you know, found a way to use my time well but it was still you know the prison life was very it wasn't all books and study and exams prison life is very challenging people outside think there are rules in a prison and there are there's a big book in the governor's office and it says prison rules but on a prison landing in a prisoner hierarchy there are no rules and you have to learn to adapt to this very primitive existence and you've got to be in it to understand it the dynamics of a prisoner hierarchy you know one prison I was in over Two and a half years, there were three prisoner-on-prisoner killings. Every other week, somebody got stabbed. You know, it was a a very odd way to live in there. I was in a major riot in 1991, a siege. But I hung on to my books, and I hung on to hope that maybe I I could find a better way to live, even in prison. The years passed. I became, prison's a very small world. Everybody knows everybody's business. And I became known as, as the guy that could write a good letter. So people would come to my cell and ask me to write a letter home, write an application to the governor, a parole representation, complaints to the governor. I, I loved wrote it, writing those because I got a lot of vicarious pleasure writing other people's complaints to the governor, <laughs> sitting back. And, uh... But I found, you know, I'd never had a role in a community before. I'd never been a contributor in a community. In prison, writing gave me that ability to be a contributor uh, and, to, and to be a, uh, an enabler, a helper. Uh, you know, I wasn't a goody-goody, but I wasn't a baddie-buddy. You know, I found a way to live in there, to walk that middle line. Fifteen years in, I got the chance to write for the Guardian newspaper. Unbelievable. Never happened before. Um, it's pure coincidence, but I, w- I hadn't realized that all those years in prison, I'd been preparing for opportunity. You know, I, I, I'd never really thought about preparing for opportunity, but I'd been doing that by my studies, my writing, the way I was living. And this opportunity came. And I could have crawled away and rotted in there. Shadows on prison landings harbor the rotting carcasses of lots of life prisoners who give up. You know, it's hard to keep going. You know? I'm not a flag waver for prisoners' rights. And I'm not, never advocating sympathy for prisoners. But the reality is, you know, it's hard to keep going and find some meaning. Year after year after year, it's just like climbing a mountain every year. And anyway, I, I, I got this chance. I went to the prison governor. I thought he's going to be so excited when he hears this. One of his convicts is going to be a writer of a national newspaper. So I got my little bits and pieces and I went to his office and, you know, he said, stop, stop, stop. He said, Let me just no prisoners allowed to contact the media. I said, no, I said, Governor, I, I, I don't want to contact the media. I said, and I, the first time I ever said it in my life, I said, I almost spat it out. I said, I'm a writer. I'm a writer. It almost made me cry saying it. You know, I thought, am I, am I really a writer? You know, I didn't know if I was. He said, the Governor said, I suggest you get another hobby. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, he's right. You know, it's a stupid fantasy. Who, who, who do I think I'm kidding? Me, you know, I had this vague fantasy that if my life had been different, maybe I could have been a journalist. Maybe I could have been a writer. And this opportunity came. The psychologist said to me in those early years, I, almost, I did almost give up, and she said, and she came to my cell with a prison officer. She said, what, what are you doing? I said, I can't see the point in doing this, John. You know, why am I doing this? Uh, you know, and there's all this sense of, you know, not deserving uh, success, if that's what it was, just achieving a few modest things. She said to me, you owe it to your victims to do the best you can. Well, they're in here. And that's a very distorted thing to say to me because I, 
you know, it, it didn't really make sense. Uh, what I owed my victims couldn't be, couldn't be paid, you know. But it motivated me to get back into the education and, and use that time uh, the best way I could. And that's why I took that opportunity to write for the Guardian. I fought the governor. You know, we, we took petitions out and eventually the prisons minister in the UK said, yes, okay, I'm content for this to go ahead. And I started to write a column called A Life Inside. Every, every other Thursday, this thing was in the paper. And, uh, you know, you don't make a lot of friends in prison, but I, I, I met a couple, Big Rinty and Felix the Gambler. They were my two pals in there. And we would go down to the prison library on a Thursday morning. There's one copy of the, news, uh, the Guardian newspaper used to come to the prison every Thursday. And we'd race in there and get the paper. And, and there we were, A Life Inside by Owen James. And there was Rinty, and there was the Gambler, and there was me, and we, we, we lived, you know. People were, were, were getting a flavor of the reality of prison life. So, so even though I'm in there, I was actually doing something for my community outside. I was giving them some, some insights into this odd way of life that everybody seems to have a, an opinion outside about. But few people know the truth about prison. And so I went from being this prison writer to being a writer in prison. The Guardian paid good money, went to charity. I was happy to do that. I'd never, I'd never given anything. I'd never had anything to give to anybody before. So I was, I was happy for that money to go to charity. And one day the... A visitor came, you know, often officials, local councillors and bigwigs go to prisons and have a look around. The deputy mayor came to the prison, so the governor showed him around his jail. And he brought him to my cell and said, this is Owen James, he writes for the Guardian newspaper. <laughs> and I said, I thought you, what a hypocrite, you know. <laughs> let me tell you this, when I was trying to persuade him to let me do this writing thing, some years earlier, the prison service had supported my... Um, application to do a, a distance learning journalist course and I got a certificate for that and as I was when he was giving me the you know he said 50, 50 small no's or one big no he said that was, his, that was his final answer and I had that certificate and I said, but you, I said but you supported me with my journalist course and he said and he sort of ducked a little bit and he went we didn't expect you to do any real journalism <laughs> But I didn't expect to do any real journalism either. You know, I, it, was a, it was a fantasy. And I said, I, you know, I said to him afterwards, after they introduced me to the, the mayor, the deputy mayor, I said that was a bit hypocritical. What was all that about? The Guardian newspaper. He said, look, he said, the thing is, he said, we as a society, we believe in rehabilitation for prisoners. But we're not sure how rehabilitated we want them to be. And becoming a Guardian columnist, that was obviously far too rehabilitated, you know, that was, that was a, a, a rehabilitation too, too far. But he's a good guy, most of the people that work in our prisons, they're good people, they're decent people, they're people who work in there that should never be let loose in a prison, or wear a prison uniform, but there's some really noble, decent people that work in those places, without them, people like me wouldn't stand a chance, psychologists, counsellors, teachers, some good prison officers governors, you know, there's, there's an army of people there that really are trying to make that prison thing meaningful on our behalf. Not to be kind to prisoners, to give them treats, give them perks, give them an education. It's to try and stop them being harm causers. That's the whole purpose of, of, of the people who work in our jails. Anyway, the, the years passed, I wrote my column 20 years down the line to the day, the parole board said, you, you know, time's up, you can we're going to let you out, give you a chance. And I walked out into the, into the sunniest day imaginable, you know. I used to think when I was in jail, if I could just live long enough to experience one sunny day out there, I'll keep going. Because there were times when I, you know, 1,247 people took their own lives while I was serving my 20 years in those prisons. And I, it passed my mind a couple of times, that was a way out. One sunny day, it's all I wanted. And I got out on that sunny day, and it wasn't that great. <laughs> and I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why it wasn't that great. Because those 20 years barely made a dent in the debt I owe my victims. Barely made a dent. I can't, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure now where, where those 20 years fit in the equation. But I did the best I could. I was free at last, free to be who I should have been.
and be a good neighbor. And it was the best I could do. Thank you very much. Oh, and I, I just wanted to pick up on, on one of the uh, points you made there, which was that you're not sure how much we want people to be rehabilitated. When it was first announced that you were coming to, to Sydney to speak at the Opera House, there was a bit of an outcry. It was in the Daily Telegraph. It was on 2GB. They, they, they went pretty, <laughs> pretty nuts about it. Um, but, you know, there are victims. There are people that were affected by your crimes. How does that... Still... Yeah. So do you have a sense of nervousness about being here, talking at the Sydney Opera House, you know, people coming, paying to come and see you? I mean, there's, there's a, that's the question, isn't it? When the governor said, we're not sure how rehabilitative we want prisoners to be, I thought that was, a, that was an absurd notion. And now that I'm outside amongst you guys and amongst good society... You know, I want, pe I want people, I want to be safe from people coming out of prison. You know, I want us all to be safe from people, as safe as we can be from people coming out of jail. I, I never had uh, aspirations or, or hopes that I, I was going to have this sort of life. You know, I, just, I, was just, I just found something that was good at in jail and it led me here. It led me to be a professional writer. Now, I could just hide away now. I could just hide away in a hole and maybe fire a bit of writing out and on again. But I've, be, I've become a professional writer. I've become somebody that people want to, uh, seem to be interested in listening to. Mm. And I feel obliged, you know, to, to... The public don't get a chance to engage with these issues. Not really. They hear politicians. They hear journalists. They don't hear the, the reality. Mm. Uh, they don't get a chance to engage with that reality. And I, th I think this is an opportunity for that. But, you know? but it's not always comfortable for you to talk about what you did, you know, I, I, I've had enough conversations with you now to know that, that there is a pretty big level of discomfort uh, for you, you know, it, it strikes me that you're self-flagellating. Well, in a way, you see, I'm, I suppose I am, and in, 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 some, in some ways, you know, this, you, you, you've been a great audience so far. Um, <laughs> Just wait until the questions <laughs> come. But... You know, it's not, it's not easy, but I, you know, I am who I am. This is not an act. I became who I should have been. It's not easy, um, but it gives me a sense that I'm still making a contribution, if that makes any sense. The, guy, the fact that you guys are here, you're interested, you know. Someone walked up to you yesterday in the street, having seen you on sunrise yesterday, and thanked you and congratulated yeah, yeah. you. Do you then feel a sense of guilt? Or do you feel proud? What, 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 what's your hum, way hum, of reflecting on that? I feel humble about that. I could, I, you know, I, I shook this lady's hand and I, I just, you know, I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that, I, that, you know, for all the criticisms of our prison system and all our, our outrage and our anger about crime and punishment and criminals, and, I live in a society that was prepared to give me a chance, you know. Um, and I, I, I think people need hope that, that prison can work, can be beneficial for society. I'm, I, I read the newspapers about crime and I see an old lady bashed for a, a handbag or I see a, a young woman molested or killed. And, you know, I, I, I get angry like everyone else. I look at that and I think, I, I wonder about me talking about rehabilitation, you know, for these people. But it's not about, you know, you've, you've got to be a little bit dispassionate when we look at this and we make it for the decision makers. They're, they're often the politicians have a very disingenuous take on crime and punishment. They, they say things and we just go, oh, our justice minister in the UK at the moment has just decided that prisoners are going to wear prison uniforms again. I mean, most of them already wear prison uniforms, but it's made a big issue about this. But when you see uh, episodes of crime in the newspapers mm. or on the television, and almost always the focus is on the, the victims or the family of, of, of the victims, and as you've said, you, you feel sorry for them and you feel angry on their behalf mm. and you want those, you know, mm. terrible guys to go to prison for what they did. How do you marry that with what you know about the way prison works and the way the justice system functions? Well, maybe that's why I'm still doing this. I'm still prepared to talk about it. I'm still prepared to write about it because I know that we, we don't pay the right attention to what happens to people when they're in prison. We, we don't pay attention to them. You know, as I wrote a little piece this week, if they need education, give them education. They need work skills. If we have a system that lets people out of prison, and most of us do, you know, we let them out, these people. If we, if we just built fortresses 
and keep them all, you know, on islands far away from civilization. Like Australia. <laughs> <laughs> no, if we, if, we, if we did that, well, we wouldn't have to worry about it if they're not coming it, back. It, it didn't work that badly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, if, if, they, if they weren't coming out, it wouldn't matter. They are coming out, so it matters. It matters that they come out less likely. We saw what happens in Norway, that low reoffending rate. You know, I, I was there again this year, and I, saw, I spoke to a prison guard, and I said, What's the, what do the Norwegian public think about this? You know, she said, most of the Norwegian public don't really care too much about prisons. As long as they're coming out less likely to cause more harm and distress, it's not a big issue for them, you know. So as context, you're talking about Bastoy Prison, which mm. is on an island off the south coast of Norway. Mm. Um, we went there together. What, what makes it so different, so unique? Well, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the civilised approach that they have. They, they live like, like a village community, don't they? We, we saw them with their, trundling about with their horse and carts and pedalling their bikes and working in the woods and in the forests and, and the farms. Mm. And people, I mean, you, you felt safe there. These were people mm. serving long sentences for heinous crimes, as heinous as anything I did. Mm. And um, we felt safe. Mm. They were pleasant people, you know. And, that's, and that, the focus was to get them out as pleasant people, not as damaged, dysfunctional human beings who are going to do the same thing or worse again. For those of you that are not familiar with Bastoy Prison, uh, recidivism rates in Australia are about 60%. In the UK, I think it's high 60s. About the same, it's a bit more than that, yeah. Um, uh, this prison has uh, recidivism rates of 16%. So if you go to that prison, you're less likely to go out and commit another crime than at least every other prison in Europe. But we think probably the world, there's, there's no, nowhere on the record that has a, a better mm. uh, success rate than that. Um, uh, and, you know, much to my surprise, when we got on the ferry to go there, we were told that the guy that was, the, was driving the, the boat was a, was a prisoner. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, that was it, a surprise. You go there and, and it looks like a summer camp. Mm. Oh, well, it didn't in winter, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty nice life. And I think... You know, many of us would be offended if, if the Scaff brothers, for example, uh, you know, very, very infamous rapists, uh, if, if the killer of Thomas Kelly, a, a young Sydney boy that, that was uh, punched in the head and killed, uh, if, if the people that perpetrated these crimes ended up in a place like that. And, and why shouldn't we feel angry? I think it's okay to feel angry. I mean, it's, it's natural, you know. Uh... But if we let them out, if we're going to let these people out, if we're not going to let them out, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying we've got to be nice to these people because they're fellow human beings. I'm saying we've got to try and address the failings that, that, that turn them into this. Because we're all, that psychologist persuaded me that, that I had some potential. She said we're all born lovable. Even you, me, I, I never thought about that before. I, I've got pictures of me as a little boy in a cowboy suit. And I look at him and I think, that wasn't meant to be, you know. Mm. This wasn't meant to be. But how do, you, how do you make the argument to the public? You know, there is a frenzy around specific attacks, specific violent crimes. Um, how do you then say, well, let's give this guy a nice place to live. Let's give him some chooks. Let's give him a job. I mean, I, I don't know all the answers, you know. I really, I really don't. Because that's difficult. What you're saying there is it's a difficult pill to swallow. You know, even people, are, there will be people offended by me being here, me breathing your same air as you. Mm people will be outraged still about that you sentenced me to life my society I decided to live you know some of us are actually going to make it despite the obstacles and the challenges of prison some of us are going to make it and we, you know it's in our interest that we just accept that if we, if we send these people to prison if we're going to let them out again you know be angry by all means but try and do what we can to make sure they come out less likely to cause more harm and distress. I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's not. I, I saw when I was in jail. Uh, you know, prison crushes you. It, it sort of it undermines you. It corrodes you. It, it, it dismantles your humanity. And and then it lets you out. You know. And th th I don't think that's a very healthy thing to do. We met Arne, the guy that ran the prison in Norway. Uh, and you know, the head of the prison, he, he was actually a, a psychiatrist. He wasn't... A psychologist. A psychologist. Yeah. Um, and, and he said to us that uh, 
the thing that most prisons do is take responsibility away from the prisoners. Most prisoners do that. Yeah. yeah from, Sorry, yeah. most prisoners do that. Uh, there, uh, they give them responsibility yeah. because that's what they need to be able to handle when they emerge. Is it possible in all countries, in the UK, in Australia, to have prison systems based on that notion? Well, it would be possible. I mean, it's possible. We know it's possible because Nor the Norwegians do it. So yeah. we know it. Yeah, but they're, you know, hippie Scandinavians. I don't think they are. <laughs> but I don't think they are. You know, I, I met those people. And they, they, I mean, Arnie, that prison governor, he was a very... Was a very I mean, he said to me, you know, when I interviewed him just before he retired, he said, you know, if anybody hurt any of his grandchildren, he'd want to kill them. Hmm. He'd want to murder them. He's not a softy, softy, you know, mm. I love criminals type of guy. He, but what he, he said, but what I, what I need to do, he said, I've got to, my job is to get these people out after they've done their time functioning well and living good mm. law-abiding lives. He said, yeah. this is what, I know that this is what works. Give them responsibility. Because it is ridiculous to go into a prison, have all your responsibility taken away. You're, you're infantilized in there and then, and then let you back out and somehow you, you've got to function out there. Mm. It's challenging. But, uh, I want to give you the example of my father. When he watched the documentary about our trip to, to Norway, he, he said, you know, my dad listens to a lot of uh, you know, shock jock radio. He said, well, that'll never work here. They don't have immigrants. And that's yeah. why it works. Yeah. It's not true. They do have a lot of immigrants yeah, here in Norway. But, but it does speak to a certain truth, which is that it's quite a hom homogenous society. It's very egalitarian. There's high wealth. And there were already reasonably low crime rates. So could you put in place a system like that in a place where there is already high crime rates, there is a lot of violent crime, uh, where there are different cultures uh, all intersecting with one another? I think the interesting thing is, we, there is a place in England, the UK, there's a, there's a, a resettlement prison called Blantyre House, where I actually finish off my time there, you know. And it's, a, it's like a the UK's best kept secret. There's another prison, a psychiatric or psychology, uh, therapeutic prison called Grendon. Nobody ever talks about it. It's like, these, these places work. They, they turn people out less likely to commit more crime, but it's all kept quiet. You know, it's not spread. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it isn't something that the government want to, want to reveal too much about, you know. Mm. Um, because I, I don't think, the government, I don't think they've got the confidence in, the, in, this, in, in their society to accept that that's in their interest to have more of that sort of stuff. Mm. You know, because people, it is, it's an, it's an outrage, crime. You read about crime in the newspapers and it's, it's horrific, some of, the, some of the things that humans do to each other. It's just appalling. You mentioned before that there was a picture of you as a little boy in a cowboy suit and, and you wondered whether you were, you know, born uh, into this life. Um, is there a particular point when you reflect on it where things went on the trajectory that they ultimately did? Well, I mean, there is. I mean, I, 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 there's no excuses for crime. And I'm, not, I'm not here to try and minimise my culpability or any, any of that sort of stuff. But with the psychologist's help, I was able to untangle my life all the way back to that little boy with the cowboy suit. And um, like a lot of people in prison, I, uh, I ended up in a very sort of dysfunctional family situation. My mother was killed in a car crash. My dad became a violent drunk. And before then, they'd been happy, a happy couple. You know, they, were, they, they had me and we had this little house. and we looked, we looked like a nice little family, you know. Then this thing happened. My dad becomes a drunk and a violent man. And I suddenly, you know, I don't know, I just become somebody who's tagged along to these strange families. My dad, my dad sort of moved around a lot with different relationships. He was a very violent, he was incredibly violent to the women he lived with. Used to terrorise all the kids, all these other kids that I, I was sort of lumped along with, and um, I sort of just lived on my wits really. When I was ten, I left home and sort of lived like wild boy. Committed my first crime. I broke into a sweet shop. Arrested by the police. I, I was screaming my eyes out in the police car. I said, "The police don't tell my dad. My dad will kill me." And the policeman said, "You deserve to be killed." That's how bad I was. So, you know, those sort of things. When you're a kid, you absorb a lot of this stuff. And I thought, God, I deserve to be killed. You know, I was the worst kid in the world. And they, went, they took me to court. I was convicted of burglary. My dad had moved down south. He disappeared. And they put me in a, um, a children's home. It wasn't a terrible place, but, you know. And it's funny because when I got to that home, a lot of the boys there, they were, were all pretty, you know, 
a mixed, a mixed bag of odd kids. And when I got to the home, it's funny, I was, I, was, I was in this car, the social worker's car, who drove me to the place. And I was crying and scared. I wanted to go back to my den. And we pulled into this, this, the car park of the home. And in the bay window, I could see all these boys' faces looking out at the new kid, you know. So I stopped crying. I got out of the car and I went in. And uh, the kids were asking me, hey, what are you in for, mate? What are you in for? It's a children's home. It wasn't a prison. But we thought of ourselves. There's a criminal culture amongst us. And we, and we you know, I, I, was, I was too embarrassed to say, oh, I broke into a sweet shop. I said, oh, I'm a robber. You know, I made, I made myself more criminal than I really was. And we did the same, you know, the sad thing is we did the same sort of thing in that home. We, when we thought about the future, none of us were planning to be doctors or lawyers or astronauts or train drivers or journalists. We, you know, wanted to be criminals. Mm. We wanted to be serious. We were going to be, you know, big timers. And uh, sadly, a number of us did end up in the prison system later on. You said you left home when you were 10. You were forced to leave home or you actually made the decision? I just, ran. I just left, you know. Do you remember that decision? Oh, God, yeah. It was a, it was a situation. Uh, I don't want to really speak badly of my dad because my dad had his own problems and dysfunctions. But he just had one, one particular time when he woke up drunk and he grabbed a hold of me for smiling. Um, and he, tried, he smashed a cup and went to push it in my face. And the woman he was living with, she jumped on him and pulled this thing out of his hand. And there's a roaring fire in the grate. And then he started to try and push my head in the fire. And she was struggling like hell. And I managed to pull myself away. And I just ran, you know. That was me. That was, I thought I had enough of this. I'm, I'm going. Mm. And basically, you know, I loved my dad. We, we, you know, I love him. He, he died when I was in prison. But I hated him as well, you know. It's a very strange thing to, to be, to love and hate someone at the same time. So as you're running away, are you thinking about what you're running to? Well, I just went, no, not really. You don't, when you're that young, you, know, you don't think about those things. Yeah. Um, but clearly, the, the, the criminality escalated from did. stealing sweets. Yeah. It, it, how quick was the escalation and... and and um, what sort of thing did it, did it lead you into doing? It was a fairly gradual... I mean, I was, it wasn't, I, you know, I was never going to be a, a gangster or a big-time criminal or anything like that. I was just, a, I was just a, a, a troubled young person. Because of my sense of being a criminal, it, it was no big deal to get drunk, have a fight, steal a car, smash a window. Those sort of things happened. I, I, I drifted, you know, around the country. I, I took jobs in various places, laboured on building sites. I worked tarmacking roads. I worked in... Washing up in restaurants, um, I slept in bushes, I slept on beaches, I slept in motorway service areas and graveyards and bus shelters. And I just sort of drifted along. I had a couple of really uh, relationships where I let... I, be, I became my dad in a way. I turned into him. Mm. And this was my, but my dysfunction and my criminality escalated. You know, I spent a couple of periods in, a, in young, young prisoner prisons. They were like gladiator schools. You, you had to be a tough guy in there to manage those places and I'm sure I came out of those places more dangerous than I was when I went in. The, the thing is today you argue for a better prison, prison system effectively but aren't you the evidence that the prison system can work? Well no because I did it in spite of most of what I encountered in there. You do, you do it by luck, you get out of these days and then when you get out people don't really want you anyway, you know, you do your time, you try and get a job. I mean I'm lucky because I'm, I'm a self-employed writer. I'd hate to be knocking on doors and, you know, they ask you, the first thing they ask you, have you got a criminal record? Well, I'm not sure where I would start. You know, well, when I was 10, I sort of did this and then, then this happened like 15 years later. You know, they're going to show me the door fast. Mm. Um, all I'm saying is, you know, prison can work. We, d we deserve, a civilized society deserves prisons that they can be proud of, not ones that they're constantly ashamed of. In the UK, we just had a big report, the annual review of prisons. And the inspector said it's the worst he's seen for the last six years, last 12 months, constructive and purposeful activities plummeted. And, you know, we, we're just letting it happen. We're being complacent. We're letting this happen. We're still angry about crime. Mm. And we're not really caring about what happens when these people come out. But do you We'd think rather they didn't come out, but we, that is the system that we deal with on them out. Do, do you think we're even open to that? I mean, in, a, in Queensland, a state of Australia right now, they're talking about building prisons for mm. specific groups of people, bikies, to keep them there contained. Yeah. What do you a think strange, of that? It's a strange idea to have a prison for a particular group of offenders. And um, 
Do you think that would work? Do you think it would work? Do you think that would make them less likely to to reaffirm? I think it will reinforce their anti-society values. If they, if they if they have those sort of if they're anti-society, anti the normal sort of way of living, I don't think you know locking them up like animals is going to make them want to be more engaging with society. You know. But you know they're talking about cells where a bikey might spend 23 hours of the day on their own. Um, do you think that that is a way of breaking down the relationships that they have with one another and the, the sort of codes that, that bind them together? I think that will reinforce those those things because then you, you then you you know they have a common enemy. If you if you do if you you, you know you, you try and crush people like that, people are resilient. You know, I'm sure bikers are they're, they're resilient guys. You know, they they sort of thrive often on hardship and, t- and toughness. And I, I, I can't see that being any, doing Queensland any good at all. You know, I, th- I, th- I think, I'm not sure, what, I, don't, I don't have the answers. I'm not here really to give you solutions. This is society's responsibility. It's not my responsibility, you know. I am just a writer. But if you, if you wanted to solve a problem like organised crime, uh, you know, there's a pretty successful business model uh, for these guys. Uh, is there a way you could put them through the justice system and bring them out the other side where they don't, don't want to pursue that? You've got to remember, there's some people... You know, there are people that I'm in, I'm in jail that, that just... Most people I met did have the desire to change. Mm. You know, once you're in there, you've, you've got this crime, you've got victims, and you, it's, it's horrendous. You know, the shame and remorse on a prison landing. You, you, you often, as a public, don't think that people inside have any remorse for their actions because all you read about in the newspapers is they're living in holiday camps and, you know, taking the mick out of us. Actually, that's not the case. A lot of shame, embarrassment, remorse, regret. There's a lot of that stuff in jail. But some people, you know, most people have the desire, but some, for some, the, the, the difficulties and dysfunctions and pro- problems they have are too deep-rooted for them to overcome those, hmm. those things. And, and for others... You know, sometimes if life's treated you badly, it's very hard to become motivated to want to become a better person, you know, if, especially if prison's making it feel worse, you know. How often do you think about what you did? Well, most days, if I'm honest. Because I'm a writer about prison, I'm talking to you about this stuff, I'm facing decent people here. And, uh, you know, my shame is sort of in there. It doesn't go away. Uh, I, I, think, I think about those things uh, often, you know. Days like today, I walked around the corner today and saw Sydney Opera House. And I, you know, how has this happened? I've uh, ended up being able to have these opportunities. And, uh, and people affected by me will always be... And here I am, look, you know, um, in their faces... Do I crawl away and rot, or do I just try and live the best I can and make a contribution, you know? Um, we're going to take some questions. There are four microphones. Uh, I think two, uh, one and two down here. So please start moving towards those if there's anything you'd like to ask Erwin. Um, I did want to ask you, are you a good neighbour? <laughs> do you put their rubbish out for them? Yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> um, so, uh, if you are going to ask Owen a question, uh, please give us your name, first of all, uh, and uh, try and keep the questions brief so that we can get through as many as possible. Um, let's start over here. We'll take a couple of questions first and then get Owen to, to answer them for you. Okay, thank you. Hi, Owen. Hi. Uh, my name's Rob Osborne, and I work in the prison system here in New South Wales. And I'm engaged with teachers in a range of creative arts projects, um, poetry, music, TV, radio production. But we don't offer these as um, entertainment or a diversion, but as a creative pathway to a more general engagement with education. Uh, Obviously, your own experience um, reflects a similar pathway. Um, But there are many barriers to prisoners engaging with education. One of them... I think one of the fundamental ones is the mutual hostility that exists uh, within prisons, between prisoners and custodial staff. So I'd like you to reflect on your experience, your relations with custodial staff, and perhaps to suggest how recruitment, training, and therefore the institutional culture might be shifted so that education 
becomes a more central feature of a prison regime. Okay. Uh, we'll take a couple more questions and then we'll answer them in, okay. in bulk. Hi, uh, my name's Nicola Swift. I'm lucky enough to be working with former criminals at the moment. I've got a great deal of respect for all of the ones that I've met. Um, they all seem to share, my question is, they all seem to share the same sort of story as yours, a, a bruta brutality, um, extreme brutality in childhood and usually almost no education. My question is, how do we make governments notice that the quote that one pound spent on childhood help saves 30 pounds on prison system. How do we get the governments to sit up, take notice and, and do the preventative work for the sake of the victims as much as the criminals in those years when you really do have a chance to prevent crime? Okay, and um, we'll take one more. Hi, my name's Cheryl. Um, in the early history of Australia, we had Norfolk Island, which was the worst of the places that a convict could be sent, and it was held out as the, the place of fear for convicts to keep them in line. At one point, there was a governor of that island who was incredibly successful at rehabilitating the prisoners from that island and turning them back into people who could be integrated into society. He was removed from that position because he was too successful, and there was no longer that fear factor out there to keep the other convicts in line. Now, I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking about what's happening in Queensland with, with the bikies and the suggestion of the prison there, and the fact that they, create, that they cause a very low percentage of the crime in Queensland, and yet they've been focused on to create fear and, look, we're doing something, we're a government, we're protecting you. Do you think that there is anything in governments and institutions that makes them complicit in ensuring that... Prisoners are not too well rehabilitated because then we have this thing to hold over society to help control the population. Okay. So let, let, let's deal with the, the first question uh, about uh, the sort of the intra-prison animosity that exists and particularly in, in regards to recruitment. I'm reminded of Arne, the guy in Norway, who said the first thing he does when they arrive is, is take them out for a cup of tea yeah. and ask, what do you want to get out of this place? But is there something that can be done? See, the thing is, when you, when you cram a load of strangers, dysfunctional people, into small spaces, that, that, that creates hostility amongst, you know, prisoners are not all mates together. They're not all in this great friendly club. A lot, of, a lot of hatred. You can't imagine the hatreds that build up between prisoners. And then, of course, there's the mutual hostility between, you know, staff. It's a sort of a traditional thing. You, you, it's very hard to, um, you know, trust somebody who's locking you in a cell and enjoy a relation, meaningful relationship with that person. They're, lock, they're locking you in, you know. And, you, and what happens is this sort of false um, interaction takes place. With the, you know, the prisoner, only the prisoner knows how authentic the, the interactions are. And you have to duck and dive and wangle and and some of the, you know one of the most noble pe people I met in prison was the prison officer who came to tell me my father was dead, and the way he did that to me, you know, the way he broke that news in a very considerate and gentle way. Uh, you know, I never forget that, that that you know there are some amazing people that work in those places. It was great to hear that uh, the chap there uh, they're, they're doing these creative stuff in jail because that that has the big impact. You know, I, I getting involved in. It sounds a bit soft on crime, you know, drama and music and the arts. But without those things, I, I couldn't have had the confidence, you know, built my, the confidence I've got to be able to come out and just be, be myself with you guys, you know. You've remained in contact with people that were running prisons, haven't mm. you? Who, that were running prisons? Yeah, Absolutely. when you were there, yeah. One of my best pals is a former prison governor, was my prison governor. Mm. You know, I've met people, uh, prison officers, retired... When he comes over, he's retired to, to Greece. When he comes over to the UK, he comes and sees me. We have a bit of fishing together, you know. It's, uh, it, mm -hmm. You know, people are people, even in a prison. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how you, you know, there was no hostility on Bastow Island. Those no. staff and those prisoners, they, it seemed like an authentic relationship to me. So it, it can be done. The second question was about uh, early intervention, I guess, and identifying individuals who may be on that trajectory? Well, I think, I think the lady was absolutely right. We should be investing in our children. Uh, in the UK, we don't like children very much who don't function very well. We label them feral, you know, we animalise them. We, 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 we pick individuals out as... In fact, we had one a few years ago called Wild Boy, and then we had Rat Boy. 
And we had Safari Boy, because he was sent on a safari to try and change his ways. And, you know, we, we, we focus on these people and we, we, we demonize our children. Mm. And really, all that happens then is, you know, they, they, they don't have their issues resolved. So, mm. I mean, education's the key, I think. Serious education and, uh, and big investment in education. Do you ever think back to the robbery episode in the sweet shop and think, actually, it could have been turned around? At that point? Well, I think the mistake they made was to criminalize me so young. I think that was the mistake they made. They convicted me of burglary. They didn't need to do that. They didn't need to. They could have just, you know, give me a good talking to, maybe give me some care and attention. They didn't need to do that. I did, it was wrong. I knew it was wrong to do that, to steal those things. I knew it was wrong. I didn't have the intellectual capacity, the sophistication to understand why it was wrong, why it was better to do a good thing than a bad thing, you know. When, you, when you're in that survival mode, especially as a kid, you're not weighing up all these philosophical questions, you know. Mm. You just want, I just want a big jar of sweets, I wanted a treat, and uh, that's all I could think about, you know. Um, and the, the, the final question was about, um, this just slipped my mind, do you remember what it was? It no? was that lady there. Oh, okay, the bikies in yeah. Queensland and Norfolk Island. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think that there, there always needs to be a worse option within the system that, that acts as a deterrent or do you think governments are sort of complicit in I think there's, there's uh, creating a of, fear? There's, there's a complicity even with the media and politicians they, they create this this, um, this this ignorance really, you know, they create these images and, and uh, feelings and, and then what happens is we, you know, we, we don't really get a chance to, to uh, make our own mind up we, we're told all this stuff, you know we're almost we're told how to think about this, mm. um, but I, I think I think there, there ought to be a you know prison system. That, you know, I needed to go to jail. There's no question about that. I needed maximum security, and I got it. But it took years before I was in, in a position where people wanted to, re, you know, the, 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 where the, where the, the whole institution was geared to helping me. It was it was sort of helped by it was piecemeal. It, it was whether you could make your face fit. It was if you could get the right prison officer on the right day get on the right class. You have to really, you have to have the skills that most people in prison don't have. You know, you have to have real survival skills. Um, you, have to, you have to be able to make your face fit. You know, all the things that you've got to do in real life to get on, you've got to do in jail. You, it, but because you go in there not very sophisticated, not very able, uh, you know. I mean, I was chronically inhibited when I went to prison. I couldn't imagine having this sort of conversation uh, then. I couldn't speak. I mean, at my trial... I was in a high security unit and there were some big heavy duty characters there who smuggled tranquilizers in so that when they went on their trial to, to, to you know, fight their cases at the trial, they took a tranquilizer so, so they could speak so they wouldn't be, you know, too nervous or I did, this, I did the same, you know. Mm. I, was, I, was sh I was shocking in my trial. Do you remember what you thought when you were sentenced to life? Well, as I said, I, I felt relief. I mean, I was... I was it's a, it's, a, it's a shock, you know, it's, it's the worst thing can, you know, it's not the worst thing, I suppose, the worst thing is what, what, what I did to other people, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. But I was still alive, you know, and I was still there, and I just remember thinking, God, thank God that's over, that life, because the idea of going back outside would have been horrendous, you know, I was just glad it was over. Let's take a couple of questions from microphone number one. Hi, um, my name's Helen. I was thinking that in one respect you were fortunate to have a job offer come to you, but for many other prisoners, if we invest in education, skills training, are we setting up people for failure to get a job? Because, quite frankly, what do you put on your CV? Where have you been for the last 20 years? Mm -hmm. Let's take one more question from that side. Hi, Erwin. My name is Aston. I'm a high school teacher. And I was curious if you, while you're examining the prison system in Norway, whether you had a chance to also have a look at the, uh, their education system, and especially the way they dealt with kids who might have, so to speak, four outline, and, and whether the way they dealt with it uh, were, are different from the way we deal with it here. Okay. And um, one more question from that side. 
Hi, thanks for your um, really interesting and eye-opening talk today. Um, I was wondering that when you were younger and you did rob from that sweet shop and um, with your life sentence crime, if you weren't convicted, hypothetically, and if no one knew what you had done, would you have had the um, inspiration to turn your life around and become a journalist like you are today, or would you think that you would have continued down the path of crime? Okay, a great question. Great question. Do you want to, do you want to deal with that one first, Owen? I mean, this is the irony of my situation, that I, I couldn't have managed this without that prison time, without those crimes, without that awful past. And then the prison time, I couldn't have managed this. I wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened, because there was nobody to encourage me. So I found a champion in prison, a psychologist, first of all. I'd never had a champion before. And other teachers I met in there, amazing people who I'll never forget. Um... And that's the irony of it, is that I wouldn't have had this opportunity to be a writer, be a journalist, have a life again. Uh, it probably wouldn't have happened. I'm not sure how, how it would have happened. I, I needed picking up then and, and being made to feel secure again. That's, that's what was missing. You know, when you, when you feel that anxiety of massive insecurity, putting me in the home wasn't enough. You know, I needed care like a lot of kids who end up like that, they, we, we need to care about them. And maybe if, if a champion had come along then and said, hey, you, you're pretty good writing, let's just give you a little internship at the local newspaper and see how you get on down there. You know, that's what I need. That's what often happens in real life when good families, you know, they see a bit of potential in their kid and they, they say, hey, you need, let's get him here, let's get her there, let's, let's yeah. help her, let's support her, you know. They have proceeds of crime laws in the UK, they have them in Australia. Have they ever come after you, wanting your money? What, from the sweet shop robbery? Well, no, for, for, <laughs> for, from the writing. I mean, you the know, writing, you draw well, on... I draw, I draw on my... I, don't, I never write about my crimes. I never would. I, don't, I wouldn't talk about them in the public. I, wouldn't, I don't think that would be appropriate. Um, that's, that's been dealt with by me and the psychologists and the prison officials. But the thing is, I, I, you know, the Guardian wanted me initially to write about prison. Hmm. And that's what I did, and the money went to charity. And then I got out, and the, the prison service said, well, you know, it's, it's a legitimate job, the writing. So I carried on writing my column, making my regular columnist, and, and now I write features and, and uh, you know, interviews. And it's, it's, it's sort of evolved into this, uh, this um, sort of prison speciality, if you like. And I don't mind that. I'm fascinated by prisons. And I never seem to get fed out of writing about this issue. And, and, you know, The Guardian pays me as a journalist for, you know, to write good pieces. If it wasn't any good, they wouldn't publish it. They don't just do it because I'm an ex-convict who talks about prison. They, they, they seem to think that my writing has some merit for their readers. Mm. And I get a lot of good response from readers. You know, that keeps me going. Somebody yesterday, you know, the, the lady thanked me for saying something interesting on the telly. You know, that keeps me going. I think, well, you know, this must be something that's worthwhile doing. Mm. Uh, the second question then was about education and whether there was anything... I mean, we didn't, didn't visit any schools in Norway, but, no. but there was a very clear difference between the way they think and are taught to think about criminality. Yeah, well, I think... That, you mean generally, the, the yeah. Norwegian people? Yeah. There, there, there was a... Because we met somebody who'd been on Bastow at prison. You remember the guy, and we were asking in the restaurant about yeah. what do they think about Bastow? And he went, oh, great place. He said, I did a sentence there for drunk driving or something, didn't he? Or something <laughs> like that. And they were, they were, he was quite happy and open to talk about that to these, to these strangers. Mostly, you'd keep that sort of stuff quiet, you know. Mm. I certainly, if I hadn't become somebody who writes in a paper, I wouldn't want to broadcast the fact that I've been in jail and mm. done terrible things. It's not something you want to talk about. Mm. Just interestingly, if you were actually outed, as it were, by an Australian, weren't you, on the internet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, you see, outed, you know, I, I'd never, I, I didn't think I'd been... I was hiding. I, I, you know, when I was in jail, I started to write. I tried to be discreet. My full name is Owen James Monaghan. I wrote as Owen James. It sounded like a writer's name. You know, it gave me a little you bit of... You needed sort of P. Owen P. James. <laughs> no, but it gave me a little bit of discretion. I didn't want to just jump up in the media and start offending people. People affected by me who are still affected now. I didn't want to really do that, but I didn't want to hide either. But when I came out and I started, people wanted me to talk to them or write up things and invite me to conferences and things. And I got nervous about that. I thought, well, do they know who I am? Do they really know what I did? Why, are they, why, are they, why do they want me? If, if, and then I thought, if they really knew what I, what I was, they probably wouldn't want me. And I got a bit paranoid about that, you know. And then there was internet 
of internet stalking, people trying to know who did Owen James kill? What was Owen James's crime? It happens now, they, they do it now. I'm over that now, but at the time, it was a bit scary. And then some, there's the Australian... Twitter handle. There's someone that tweets as you. Yeah, not now. They did, they did. Somebody opened up an account as Owen James, stuck a photograph of me on there, and started tweeting. What the hell's that all about? You know, this, this modern world has taken me... You know, I'm still getting used to this, uh, yeah. the modern world. But. So the other question we had there was about whether giving people the expectation of a better life is just setting them up for a fall. You know, what do you put on your CV after 20 years in prison? But that's because, the, you know, the whole, the, our whole society, it needs all tying up. And, you know, we're, we're a long way from getting a, a, a society where we're like the Norwegians, where, you know, you go to jail, you come out, and people want to help you to get a job, you know. But there are a lot of people, I have to say, in the UK, lots of charities. I'm a, I'm a trustee of the Prison Reform Trust. Um, I'm a patron of a, an organisation called the Reader Organisation. They encourage reading groups in prison. I was in a prison the other week, seeing how this reading group worked, and it was just amazing. You know, there are some people who really do want our prisons to work, and they want to, and they want to help people to come out and be better people, like the guys that we're talking about over there. It's not all as bleak as it might be sounding when I'm talking about this. It's just that mostly. You know, the, it's the reoffending rates we've got to pay attention to. At the moment, in, 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 in England, it's like 70% almost across the board. Uh, and, and unless we all think the same way about these things, but we, we're never, you know, th th that's a dangerous idea. Let's all think the same way, you know. <laughs> okay, let's take a couple more questions. We've only got a few minutes, so please keep them quick. Thanks, Owen. Uh, my name's Bruce. I just wanted to ask a question about, um, it sounds like, uh, so shame and remorse were one of those driving factors that uh, helped you move well, from going to prison and coming out the other end. I was just wondering if somebody is not experiencing those sorts of feelings that will motivate them towards change, how, well, what do you think might be a way of actually helping them to use those emotions to, uh, or how you work in prison to actually motivate people with those emotions to, uh, to make change? Okay, we'll take another question from that side. Hi, Owen, my name's Sophie. I'm really interested in your thoughts about the idea of penance. So you've talked a bit, and if I'm right in what you said, it seems like your idea of penance was the doing of time and also the giving back to the community, us now, and also when you were within in prison. But I'm interested in your thoughts about personal penance, like the penance in relation to the families of the victims as well. Okay, two really interesting questions. We've got a minute and 20 seconds to get through them. Um, but, but the first question about prisoners who are not feeling that sense of, of owing something back. Well, it often depends what you've done. And, you know, not, not everybody. The prisons are not all full of murderers. You know, there's a lot of people in there that I don't think should be in prison. A lot of people haven't committed. If, if you haven't really harmed anybody seriously, I don't think those guys and women should be in prison. 80% of the women in the UK... Uh, prison system have committed a non-violent offence, usually something to do with fraud or something. And they don't really need to be in prison. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's not. A, they, they, do they need to be remorseful for for trying to feed their kids and sell a few quid to get by in life? You know, I'm not sure what, what, that that needs to be a remorseful thing. But you know, if you if you've hurt somebody, I, I, you know, most people I met could, could cause serious harm to other people. They 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 felt that remorse and that shame. You know, there's no, no question about. It. But you've got to get into that. You know, if you, but, can, if you, but can you use the emotions or whatever it is that person that's feeling that's not feeling remorse yeah. to drive them in the direction of, in, I think of it's, changing I think it's their a, life? It's a, it's a difficult thing, you know. But the thing is, if you have an environment where where where, where it's geared towards allowing those things to happen, mm. uh, you know, appeal to their sense of have a better life, enjoy life more. Learn a skill, earn some money. Mm. You know, I'll just say to the lady, if I could just answer the yeah. lady's question. That's a very difficult one you just said, Danny. And I'm aware, even me being here now talking, it may be causing some some offence. Uh, I'm sure it is. And it's not. I, I don't think it's it's in my um, it's not my prerogative to to try to. It has to come from the other side. I think that sort of stuff. And I have had some contact. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure it was very satisfying for either party. But sometimes you just there's a bridge that just can't be built, you know. But thank you very much for asking that question. It is something. It's fair to say that you think about a lot, though, isn't it? I, well, I do. I do think about that, but I, I don't just dwell on that. You know, I, I, I'd just be crushed. I wouldn't be able to function if I just focused on that. So 
I, you know, I, 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 I just do the best I can with what I've got left. That was my plan. Do the best I can with the time I've got left. And uh, that's the best I can do. I'm sure all of you will agree it's been a really uh, insightful conversation. And as I said at the beginning, Owen is an incredibly thoughtful person. So very kind of you to say that. Thank you very much for coming and uh, having the conversation with us all today. Owen <laughs> Grant. And uh, just a reminder, just a reminder, Owen will be downstairs to sign some books uh, in the southern foyer. Thanks.